Well, you can uh, grab your Bible if you have it there with you, next to your coffee, I assume, and you can open up to Ephesians chapter 6. That's where we're going to be this morning in our last part of this study of the armor of God. And as you're opening there, I, I can think of very few things more unsettling in warfare than the reality of landmines. I don't know if you're aware of this, but thousands of innocent civilians and many children die each year and are maimed each year from inadvertently wandering into a minefield and triggering one of the mines that has been set. And many of those mines were set years and even decades ago. And it's estimated that millions and millions of acres of land around the world are still unusable because they're contaminated by landmines. So imagine for a second that you're walking along, maybe over in Israel. Um, There's a lot of landmines around the borders of Israel. Let's say you're walking along and you encounter this sign as, as you're walking along the path. And it says danger, mines, and there's barbed wire around a particular section of land. Now, what sort of person would go ahead and step over the barbed wire and frolic in the field beyond the sign and the barbed wire? Well, I would say it would have to be a person lacking in humility and swollen with arrogance and pride. When it comes to our spiritual lives, pride leads us into minefield after minefield. And the Bible warns us over and over again that pride will lead us to spiritual harm and destruction. Let me just give you a couple of verses. Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 11. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Proverbs 29, 23. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Proverbs 16, 18. I'm sure this is familiar to you. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And there are many, many other verses that deal with pride and the destructive nature of pride. Now, why is pride so sinister and so deadly and so damaging to us? Well, it's the exact same situation as that man who arrogantly steps over the barbed wire and thinks that he won't be hurt and he won't trigger a landmine. The arrogant person trusts in himself. He thinks he is the expert in every single area. He rejects the counsel of God and thinks that he knows better. And here's the thing. Our spiritual enemy sits and salivates over the prideful person. It's exactly where he wants us. And if there's one thing, if there's been one thing that I hope has been clear throughout this study of Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, regarding the armor of God, I hope you have seen how important humility is as we think about the armor and as we engage in spiritual battle. We cannot be exalted in pride. We cannot depend on ourselves. We cannot trust in our own abilities. We must rely on God's strength and not our own. And we're going to see that again today 
as we finish up this section. As I go through these first three tactics and get to our fourth, I just want you to see over and over again how important relying on God's strength is and humbling ourselves and not being lifted up and swollen with pride. That's really the the essence of this passage. So in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20, we've seen four tactics necessary to resist our spiritual enemy with God's strength. The first one of these is found in verse 10. Rely on God's power at work in you. Verse 10 sets the tone for the rest of the section. Let me read it to you. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. The power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in us if we're believers. And so we have to cultivate humility and cultivate a disposition that relies on his strength and on the work that he has done. And that is absolutely necessary for entering into spiritual battle. And as we know and rely on God's strength, then our second tactic is that we must recognize and resist the enemy, our enemy. Let me read verses 11 through 13. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm." We're able to resist and we're able to stand firm when we put on God's armor and when we know our enemy, when we recognize that we're in a spiritual battle and our enemy is far more powerful than we are. And so to put on the armor of God, to rely on God's strength, Paul wants us to understand specifically what these pieces of armor are. What are the benefits that we have received in Christ that we then appropriate to stand firm in the midst of this spiritual battle. And he gives us six of these, and this is our third tactic. And then you'll see the fourth one on the screen there too. Receive the gifts of God for the fight is our third tactic, verses 14 through 17. Six pieces of armor here. Let me read it to you, verse 14. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Those are the six pieces of armor. And you can, if you remember from last week, we talked about how several of these pieces of armor are mentioned in the book of Isaiah and they're mentioned as being put on and worn by God and by his Messiah. And so the point of that and what Paul's doing here is helping us to understand that these pieces of armor are actually God's armor. They belong to him. And then they're given as gifts to us to equip us and for us to wear in the midst of battle. And so when you begin to understand that this is God's armor and it's made by him and then given as a gift to us, then that tells us that we can trust this armor in the midst of battle. It will hold And it will keep us safe, and it will protect us from our spiritual enemy. And so you can see the pieces of armor here in verses 14 to 17, but I think it's natural 
to even still, after all of this, to ask this question. Practically speaking, how do I put this armor on? I mean, what does this look like? I know it's available, I know it's there, but sometimes I don't feel like I'm wearing it and I don't feel very protected from my spiritual enemy. And so how do I grow in truth and righteousness? And how do I wield the word of God with the power of the Spirit? How do I make sure that I'm actually equipped with this armor? And that's what Paul wants us to understand in verses 18 to 20. And you can see uh, the last tactic up there on the screen. We request the help of the Spirit. Let me begin this by reading verse 18. It flows right out of verse 17. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Now, Paul here in verse 18 is not giving us a seventh piece of armor. He's not giving you something else that you need to be doing in order to earn God's favor and to win some points with God. What he's doing here is he's sort of summarizing the posture that we have to have when we have this armor on and as we go into spiritual battle. No matter what piece of armor it is, this is the posture that you have with that armor. It's a posture of humble dependence. And we take this posture as we utilize each of these gifts. And so Paul is saying here, dependent prayer is the mindset that we have as we enter into spiritual battle, as we carry on the fight. One author put it this way, and I thought this was so helpful that I wanted to show it to you. Paul wants his readers to understand that prayer is, look at this, foundational for the deployment of all the other weapons and is therefore crucial if they are to stand firm in their spiritual struggle. But, man, this is challenging, right? I mean, this is challenging for me because I am self-confident and we are independent people and we don't want to depend on someone else because that lets us know that we're not perfect and that we have a weakness. We're Americans, right? We think we can do anything. We figure that if we just put in a little hard work, we just put in a little more effort, that we can make it happen. And so the prayer is very difficult for us. It's difficult for me because with that sort of mentality where we think we can make anything happen and if we just work harder, then it'll, it'll come to us. With that mentality, getting on your knees, closing your eyes, and speaking to someone that you can't even see seems very unhelpful and unproductive, if we're honest about it. But this is spiritual battle. We have a spiritual enemy. And so Paul is saying to us here, listen, there is nothing more productive and there's nothing more helpful in this spiritual battle than dependent prayer. And Paul ends this section by focusing on prayer because this is the most important part of the whole thing. This is how you appropriate the armor. This is the posture that you have. And here's the beauty of this. Prayer is open to even the weakest Christian at his or her weakest moment. 
If you don't feel capable of entering this fight, if you don't feel like you have it together, you are exactly in the right place. You are in the place to pray. When you recognize that you are vulnerable and that you lack the strength and lack the ability, you are in a perfect mindset to pray. Now, I want you to see in here, especially in verse 18, just how important Paul thinks prayer is to this battle and this fight, to standing firm. Look in verse 18 there in your Bible, and I want you to see how many times he uses the word all in this verse. Verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And what he's saying here, he uses that word four times, is that nothing is outside the scope of prayer. And no time is a bad time to pray. Let's look in detail this morning at these four uses of the word all. And this will help us to fill out our understanding of how vital prayer is for the spiritual fight that we're engaged in. The first one there at the beginning of verse 18, he says that we are to pray at all times in the Spirit. Now, what does it mean to pray at all times? Well, Paul's not saying don't do anything in your life but pray. Don't bother to eat, don't bother to work, only pray. That's not what he's saying. When he says pray at all times, what he's getting at is to, for us to be able to pray and to focus on prayer in every season and in every circumstance. There are favorable seasons in life, and there are difficult seasons. Right now, we are clearly in a time of heightened anxiety and concern. And we pray differently in different times. If it's a joyful season and everything seems to be going well from an earthly perspective, then we pray differently than we do right now. But Paul's point here is that it's always an appropriate season of life to pray. But notice when we pray, no matter what season it is, at any time or any situation, our prayer should be in the Spirit, praying at all times in the Spirit. Now, now what does that mean, to pray in the Spirit? Well, it's not some mystical experience where you sort of enter this trance-like state. You're praying in the Spirit. If you look up to verse 17, which we covered last week, you can see in verse 17 that we are to take the sword of the Spirit. What's the sword of the Spirit? It is the Word of God. So the Spirit works through the Word of God. So, praying in the Spirit is not a trance-like state that you enter into, a mystical experience. Praying in the Spirit means praying according to God's revealed will in His Word. It means praying based on the Word of God. And it means praying informed by the Word of God. And so what he's saying here, to pray in the Spirit means I pray according to what the Spirit desires. How do I know what the Spirit desires? The Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. So what does this look like functionally? Well, I think actually that the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 is a prime example of what it looks like to pray according to the Word of God. You can turn there if you want, but I'll put it on the screen for you. 
I don't know if you've ever noticed this in the Lord's Prayer before, but there are actually six requests, and I've tried to delineate these for us. Six total requests. The first three requests you'll see on the screen, I'm going to underline them, are your requests, right? Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and then your will be done. And the second three requests are us requests. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts and lead us not into temptation. And then I think the delivering from evil is part of leading us not into temptation. So we first of all, when we pray, we pray according to God's will. We pray prayers directed toward him and his glory and his kingdom for his will to be done, for his name to be glorified. And then part of praying according to God's will is turning on ourselves and praying for us and for our own needs. And so I think this prayer is a guideline for us to pray according to God's will or to pray in the Spirit, according to the Spirit's desire. And so we prepare for spiritual battle by humbly aligning our desires and our thinking to God's. We want what he wants. And he gives us what he wants in his word. And he activates his word in our hearts by the Spirit. So pray at all times in the Spirit. But if you look back at Ephesians 6 and verse 18, there's a second all mentioned here. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Now, there's two words used for prayer here, and they're pretty similar, but there's enough of a distinction that I want to explain to you the difference between prayer and supplication. So the word prayer focuses on the general practice of prayer. This is sort of all-encompassing. It means praying in thanksgiving. It means adoring God, confessing sin. Everything about prayer is included in this word. But the second word, supplication, is a little more narrow. This focuses on specific requests that we bring to God. And so what he's saying here is he wants us, God wants us to lay our requests before him, to actually ask ask him for things, to pour out our hearts before him. Now, of course, our requests are to be formed by the word of God. Ultimately, we want to desire what God desires, but we do ask for things, and we want what he wants, and we request those things of him, and he wants us to do that. He longs for us to make supplication to him in our times of prayer. And so what Paul's saying here is when he says all prayer and supplication is that you and I are to utilize every type of prayer that we can think of. Every type of prayer is available to us to exercise our dependence on God. The third all. To that end, verse 18, right in the middle, keep alert with all perseverance. To be alert means to keep watch. Think of a night watchman someone trying to stay awake late into the evening. And this is the idea of Jesus with the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. Stay alert, stay awake, keep watch. And he even tells them to stay alert in prayer. 
This phrase is also used in the New Testament to encourage believers to remain watchful as they wait for Jesus's return. So this word is anticipating his return and the end of time. And he wants us to remain alert and remain watchful as we anticipate our Lord coming back. While we wait, we are to be spiritually alert and watchful. And he tells us this here, I think, because it's very easy for us to fall into a sense of complacency. We get sort of apathetic and we stop caring and we lose that alert edge. And I think this is especially true for us in a very comfortable, modern society and lifestyle. We have everything that we need and it is very easy to get complacent. I've been reading a book by St. Augustine on Christian doctrine, and he certainly wasn't a modern man. He's writing this in the three and four hundreds, but he understood the battle with complacency, and he described it like this. He said he wanted us to imagine that we are wanderers in a far country, and we're away from our homeland, and we're wandering in this far country, and we're, we're stuck there, and we're miserable. And so he says, we begin the journey home and we're excited about getting home and we can't wait to see family and friends and the place that we grew up and that we're comfortable with. And so there's great excitement as we begin this journey and we anticipate the joy and the satisfaction that can only be found at home. And then he said, when we get on the journey, here's what happens. We find, however, that we must make use of some mode of conveyance, either by land or water, in order to reach that fatherland where our enjoyment is to commence. But notice what happens. But the beauty of the country through which we pass and the very pleasure of the motion charm our hearts. And turning these things which we ought to use into objects of enjoyment we become unwilling to hasten the end of our journey. And becoming engrossed in a fictitious delight, our thoughts are diverted from that home whose delight would make us truly happy. For most of us, this sense of sort of apathetic complacency and attachment to earthly things is so normal that we hardly even notice it. It is just a part of our lives, and it's how we see the world, and it's how we live. And I think this is why Paul here wants to exhort us to remain alert and to be watchful with all perseverance. And you can't properly engage in dependent prayer and stand firm in the midst of battle when you are spiritually asleep and complacent when you're attached to earthly things and not eagerly anticipating our Lord's return and eternity with him. There's one more use of the word all here at the end of verse 18. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So up until this point, every use of the word all has pretty much been focused on the individual. I mean, these are things we do as an individual, independent prayer. But the reality is we aren't in this spiritual battle alone. We don't stand alone. 
You don't want to enter this spiritual battle alone. The lonely soldier will not last long against the enemy. And so the beauty of the church is that we are engaged in this fight together. Now, that seems kind of ironic for me to say that this morning, right? I mean, our current situation of social distancing makes fighting together quite difficult. It's easy in the midst of this time to isolate and to not ever reach out to anyone, and to not think about any other believers in the body. And this is a time when we need one another more than ever. Now, I definitely have heard stories of people at WBC as I've talked to folks this week. I've heard stories of people that are calling others and checking in on them, offering to help in any way that they can. And it's so good to hear that. If you haven't done that yet, let me just encourage you to do that this week. A simple five-minute phone call to say, how you doing? What can I pray for you for? Do you need anything? But at some point, we're going to emerge from this time, right? This time of isolation will be over. And my hope and my desire is that through this, we would realize how important the church really is for our spiritual lives and our spiritual battle. It would be a shame to come out of this crisis and to just sort of revert back to our normal mode of operation as if nothing had changed. And the reason for that is, is that God, even though this is a a terrible time in many ways, God wants to use this time to work something good in us, even through uncomfortable and difficult circumstances. That's what he does. And so we can begin practicing the importance of the gathered church now, and we can do that by Following this verse, making supplication for all the saints. Pray for one another. Get your directory out. Pray for a couple families a day. Pray that God would keep us safe physically, certainly. But pray that God would protect your brothers and sisters spiritually. I mean, this is a time of heightened spiritual warfare. It is easy to get anxious and panicked and unsettled. Pray for strength for those around you. Pray for perseverance. Pray for peace. And as you pray for one another, follow Paul's example, which he gives us in verses 19 and 20. Now, Paul's example here, he actually asks them to pray for him, but he asks them to pray specifically for him, not because he's self-centered and everything's about him, but he asks them to pray for him because of the mission that he is engaged in. That is the primary thing for Paul. I want you to notice here in verses 19 and 20 what he asks them to pray for him. Verse 19, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. You can see here in these verses, he asked for boldness twice. And he wants boldness to do exactly what God has called him to do. What has God called Paul to do? Look at the end of verse 19 boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. 
Now, what's the mystery of the gospel? Paul's explained that to us back in chapter 3. Look at chapter 3 and verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul's purpose in ministry is to proclaim to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And that fits exactly with how he describes himself in chapter 6 and verse 20. Look back there. For which I am an ambassador in chains. An ambassador represents the king or the president or the government of the country that he comes from. There's a higher authority over him, and he speaks on behalf of his higher authority, of his leadership. But as he speaks, he carries the authority and the weight of his homeland. And so Paul understands his mission in life is to represent his king by boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he does that in order to see Gentiles come to faith in Christ. Now, I think what Paul's doing here is he's asking them to pray for him because this will help to keep them focused on the core mission in the midst of their spiritual battle. It's very easy to read these verses about armor and spiritual warfare and prayer and relying on God, and it's very easy to think only of my own personal spiritual fight against whatever may be happening in your life right now. It's very easy to have our understanding of spiritual warfare narrowed to only focus on my life and what's going on with me. But Paul says here that when we pray, when we're dependent on God, even when we're in the midst of spiritual warfare, we need to think about and understand that there is a broader work of God happening in the world. And that's why he wants them to pray for him. Not because he's a narcissist, but because he wants God's work of the gospel to continue to go forth. He knows that he needs their prayers. He's dependent. He can't accomplish his mission without them praying for him. And he knows that the proclamation of the gospel is the most important reality. It's the center. The mission must remain central, no matter what else happens. And that's why Paul asked him to pray for him, asked them to pray for him. So, we spent four weeks in this passage, ten verses. The theme of this section, this section explaining the armor of God, has been remarkably consistent, I think. And here's how I would summarize it in one sentence: We stand in God's strength because we have on His armor. And we stand in a posture of dependent prayer in order to resist our spiritual enemy. 
We stand in God's strength because we have on his armor in a posture of dependent prayer in order to resist our spiritual enemy. And my prayer and my desire for us as a body of believers is that we will be able to stand together no matter what spiritual assaults assaults come our way. Let's pray. Father, we certainly need you. We need your armor. We need your grace. We need your work in us. We're so thankful that you have provided all that we need. Even during this very strange and difficult time, you have given us all that we need for life and godliness. And so I pray that you would help folks this week to spend the time to come to you in a posture of dependent prayer. Pray at all times in the Spirit, using every type of prayer and supplication. Staying alert in prayer so that we can persevere and praying for one another because we certainly need one another. Work in us by your Spirit, even now, Lord. And we thank you for what you're going to do. It's in Christ's name we pray.